0: I'm Alexander Hefner, your host on The Open Mind. You're listening to our emergency podcast edition of the program. I'm delighted to welcome Robert Denault. He's founder of Trump Administration Accountability Project. Thanks so much for joining me today. Yeah,
1: thank you so much for having me.
0: Uh, your project is aiming to restore accountability. In the midst of the pandemic and now Justice Ginsburg's death, it appears that the Supreme Court's Impartiality in adjudicating what is constitutionality is is deeply concerning. Um, how much of the the court's direction do you think matters when it comes to ensuring that the Trump administration is held accountable? i mean I think it matters a great deal
1: um, there's no doubt that some aspects of the trump administration's probably worst policies uh, have escaped certain types of accountability or scrutiny because the Supreme court either decided on very narrow grounds to send them back. Um, For instance, the the subpoenas that went to uh, from Congress to, to president Trump's personal um, accountants and his bank uh, got delayed for quite some time based on what our, pretty frivolous constitutional arguments, and uh, that ate up a lot of time where the Trump administration could have been held to account for certain personal financial ties that the president has. Um, So it matters a great deal. And there's, I think, an underpinning of political accountability there too, here, that is very worrisome um, in how the Republican Party has politicized the court, not just for their own gain, but to the point of complete contradiction and hypocrisy that undermines the the very system that is kind of essential to keeping the court um, a strong institution.
0: There are two aspects of accountability, Robert. One is constitutionality, and one is democratic rule. And as we know, often in this country, there has been an inseparability of politics and law. Do you believe that with a new president and a democratic Senate, there would be enough separation of powers and checks and and balances to ensure that accountability is restored? Um,
1: That's a very good point. I mean, I do think it's good to note that our checks and balances system is real, and it is effective in many ways. Um, But I do think there's a separate accountability here that it would be derelict for the Democratic Party not to respond to. Um, The Republican Party has politicized the nomination process. They have used Contradictory arguments now on two nominations because they were politically convenient at the time. The first was that uh, it was an election year, that's political, a political argument, um, not to go forward with a nomination of a president uh, who was entitled to nominate and have a hearing for his nominee. And now it's that they have a Senate majority, so it's different. Again, political, that's a political calculation. Um, So they're making political arguments about court nominations. They've politicized the process. It would be sort of not good for our checks and balances and, and the equilibrium of our system not to hold them accountable for those choices. So I think when you see prominent scholars and, and prominent lawyers and and I think prominent politicians starting to advocate for, hey, you know, if it means adding two seats to this court. That's not out of the question here. And that might be the only way to hold accountable these two completely astounding, you know, hypocritical choices to politicize uh, Supreme Court nominations.
0: There is the politicization that you're mentioning, but there's also the fact that the jurists that McConnell has appointed to the circuit courts and who he aspires to appoint after Kavanaugh and Gorsuch, these... Represent a minority and an extremist, fundamentalist minority within the American system and do not represent the public. So you have a judiciary that is in stark contrast to the, the belief systems and constitutional order um, in the rest of our democracy. That inconsistency, I think, is going to be a more persuasive argument to the American people, especially around an election, than they change the rules again. I think that's a good point.
1: Um, I think most Americans don't share the values that some of these hard-right conservative nominees have. And it is important to point out that they're in a pipeline system where this you know, ideological group is assembling lists of appropriate judges for what are supposed to be some of the most important um, not fully partisan nominations that make up the fabric of our government and what it's become for conservatives is a, a, a political operation. Um, and so, yeah, I think that that is an effective argument to me. A, a strong special interest group has been really effective at finding judges that subscribe to its beliefs, that does not mean that the average American or even close to a majority of average Americans agree with those beliefs, support those constitutional interpretations. Um, And so I think you're right. I think it's a twofold accountability uh, pursuit there that we should be pressing very hard to the electorate.
0: This is about judges who would potentially align themselves with a unitary executive, with a commander-in-chief now who has authoritarian tendencies, you know, if not, is an authoritarian in the making. And you want a court that has representation that is not loyalty to the president who appointed you, and so the entire judiciary, the entire system as it's currently designed, uh, it ought to be reformed. Uh, our democracy should not hang in the balance at the life and death of individual justices on a nine-person nine panel. Uh, and I think the American people would not find that a radical argument. They'd find that to be a sensible argument. Yeah,
1: I think it ties into... Many of the issues that people are starting to see, problems with the Electoral College, problems with the the fact that the Senate uh, is so disproportionate in terms of power that certain states have over, you know, where actual Americans live, that 600,000 people in one state get the same amount of senators as 40 million people in California. It's just not when it comes to our appointment nomination processes for lifetime positions uh, it, 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 they're all intrinsically tied together. And so uh, I think you know, it's hard when you pair these kinds of hard right beliefs in a unitary executive and this streamlining of power uh, that is favored by a minority of people, but somehow continuing to push forward in the amount of government they're able to seize and consolidate. It's really worrying. And it's not something that we can just solve overnight. And it's not something we think, you know, I don't think we should be thinking small here um, in terms of let's try to cobble together a coalition of four GOP senators to block this. I I don't think that's going to happen. And the reality is uh, they're thinking big. And so they and they have been for many years. This has been a goal for them to stack the courts. They they are fully aware that a majority of Americans do not subscribe to their viewpoints and they have chosen a tactical pursuit of of building a coalition in the judiciary who can accomplish those goals anyway. And so we need to start thinking big about how we're going to counteract that especially if we do get a new president and a and a democratic senate. Um and so, you know, I think big reforms are in order.
0: You also hint at this fact that the Republicans are no longer hiding the, the, the reality that they do not want a democracy. And if they want a republic, um, their definition of republic uh, is representation by a, a tyranny of the minority Um, that is inconsistent with with, um, the principles in the Constitution and the composition of the American public today. And so, you know, in in some respects, when the Republicans characterize their conviction in strict constructionism, they are clearly abandoning the idea of representative democracy. Um, they are also, over these last months and years of the Trump presidency, they have abandoned the Constitution, the Emoluments Clause, which Trump has clearly been in violation of. Mm -hmm. Of course, there have been policies enacted that were clearly in conflict with our constitutional understanding of the last 50 years. So When it comes to this crucial moment of accountability for the Constitution and for our democracy, what do you think is going to be the most constructive avenue for pursuing it after November 3rd in the scenario that there is President elect Biden, there is a Democratic Senate, and then in the scenario in which there is either a Democratic Senate or there's a Republican Senate that's retained and a re-election of of President Trump. I mean, we have to consider all these contingencies, and I'm wondering how you envision accountability being restored in those various contingencies. It's a tall order,
1: and I don't think we should kid ourselves that that's, that's not an enormous undertaking. In my mind, it begins with the simple, you know, corrupt instances of conduct that we have to start with. So there's certainly individuals in the Trump administration, including possibly the president himself, who have committed crimes over the course of this presidency. And pursuing those individuals swiftly, fairly, uh, conducting investigations, subpoenaing for testimony, individuals from the Trump administration, uh, the Trump organization, the Trump family, whether they be Attorney General Barr's associates. There are a lot of answers we need to get on some of the more concrete instances of corrupt conduct. And then I think some of the uh, uh, bigger picture things come from Congress. We cannot rewrite the past. We are not going to be able to undo the era of corruption that has beset us under the leadership of Mitch McConnell and, and a GOP that is totally willing to abandon any pretense of responsibility to our constitutional republic. But what we can do is identify the things that went very wrong and legislate ways to fix them. And I think that our Congress, in part due to you know its it stalemate we oscillate back and forth between a split congress so so frequently that it makes it hard to get major pieces of legislation finished but the special interest influence on congress is really what log jams meaningful reform and that's got to change that has to change and a biden administration and a democratic congress that is really willing to change that and pass meaningful anti-corruption legislation And good governance legislation, and maybe repealing some of the immunities that protect government officials when they engage in misconduct, that would be a big start to you know sort of fixing or remedying some of the worst behavior that's occurred over the last four years, over the last you know however many years where the Republicans have been in power. Does it fix the underlying problem where one of the parties has really abandoned the pretense of responsibility in a two-party system? No. And part of that is, is going to have to come from civic engagement and people getting informed, learning about what it is that the Republican Party has stood for and has actually engaged in over the last decade, because it is shocking and it is just honestly not consistent with how a democratic republic is meant to operate.
0: You might want to restore accountability through the Department of Justice. You you. Have envisioned a truth and reconciliation style committee or panel to investigate Trump corruption to prosecute offenders. Uh, but those prosecutions can only stand if the Supreme Court is going to let them stand.
1: That's true. But I do, you know, and it could be the law student in me, um, but. I think it is important that we recognize that Chief Justice Roberts and even Justice Gorsuch, uh, who was a, himself a, a Trump appointee, have shown um, a willingness and ability not to throw the rule of law and precedent out the window so readily. And you have seen multiple six to three, five to four, seven to two rulings come from. What's already a conservative-leaning court um, that still stick to upholding a, a woman's right to access abortion, um, that still stick to holding the president accountable, that still you know stick to LGBTQ rights being protected by people like Justice Gorsuch and Justice Roberts, Chief Justice Roberts. So I I understand people's concern, but I also think it is important to recognize you know Congress has hundreds of criminal statutes, it would be a bit bizarre that the court would suddenly start throwing out, um, you know, convictions just because they were of Trump officials. I don't think we've seen that kind of partisanship from the Chief Justice or Justice Gorsuch. Um, Although, you know, we had discussed the vacating of the conviction of Governor Christie's um, staffers, and again, that was also signed onto by liberal justices and, and was sort of narrowly under the reasoning, under the fraud statute, a traditional obstruction of justice conviction, I, I don't think is going anywhere. And there is quite a bit of prosecutable or at least investigatable conduct in the obstruction sphere for this administration. So I, I understand the concern, but I, I don't, I'm not so ready to believe that the the court will throw out. Um, legislation or convictions that are pursued simply because they are of members of the trump administration
0: right, uh, of course there's the anti corruption legislation what 's on the books and potentially what Trump will face the the kinds of legislative actions that Elizabeth Warren has envisioned in, in the right. aftermath of the Trump administration, um, but then there 's the practical policy the case of the Affordable Care Act, which has been adjudicated again at the court. And now there is a majority that would clearly be in favor of of striking it down or siding with Texas in deferring to the opinion of the lower court in a a case of a tie. Um, So with respect to legislation, it would it would seem that any new legislation that the Federalist Society, the Republicans didn't like that came out of the Biden administration, with the court in its current composition, uh, would be immediately struck down and, you know, would not have really potential um, to govern in the way that uh, President Trump did um, for this last period. Um, so I, you know, I, I guess my question is, at what point in a Biden administration does it become necessary to full-throatedly embrace the court expansion? Is it not from day one that that will be a necessity?
1: I believe it should be done on day one. Um, so you know, I don't. I I believe it should be done on day one. But I don't. I don't know if I arrive at that position from the same route you're taking. I think it should be there because part of accountability is in a political system, you are, you know, responsible for the repercussions of your actions. Republicans have politicized the nomination process and stolen two nominations uh, from, you know, their own hypocritical contradictions that were political calculations. And it would be irresponsible not to deal a political repercussion for that. And part of that is court expansion. So to me, that's how I get there. And I do think it's essential because it's just sort of justice. If you start losing uh, political justice, it's a different form of holding them accountable. And so I I do believe it's essential. Um, But in terms of approaching this from a statute is going to be de facto doomed um, if the Federalist Society opposes it, Um, I think, you know, the only major piece of legislation that we've been able to talk about in modern times, uh, in terms of constitutionality that's new, has really been the Affordable Care Act. And it's dominated so much because conservatives have fought to repeal it so often. The justices seem to have waffled so many times on exactly what they think about it. Um, But it's important to remember that that is... A massive new government program, and those kinds of programs invoke different constitutional concerns than um, passing a criminal law. And we know from two centuries of jurisprudence and congressional activity that passing criminal laws and, and ethics reforms that govern the federal government is directly and squarely within the prerogative of the federal government. So I don't think it's as easy to think that it would be doomed on arrival, even to conservative justices. We know that robust federal criminal law exists. I am not as certain that just because the Federalist Society would oppose it, it would be as convincing as say, opposition to a giant program, like the Affordable Care Act, would be as effective on, even on conservative justices on the court.
0: Right, It and, and it remains to be seen with, uh, Conservative majority, if how far the court would want to go in reversing Roe v. Wade and not just, you know, basically asserting that reproductive rights do not exist um, rather than making it a state question. Of course, the most extremists, the most extreme of the extremists, would want to outlaw abortion entirely across the whole country. Um, just as a final question, Robert, uh, do you anticipate that? Vice President Biden will have to change his tune from opposing court expansion during the whole campaign when folks like Beto O'Rourke and Pete Buttigieg um, were discussing very original ideas to ensure greater fairness. Um, If and when uh, do you think that Vice President Biden will assert a position on um, the question of Court expansion uh, and, and should it be tied to whether this nominee is is uh, approved? Uh, in other words, if this nominee is approved, then we will expand the court. Um, what do you What do you hope to hear from Biden on this?
1: I think that there is a debate coming up very soon, and that would probably be if I were you know working on the Biden campaign. That would be a discussion I would be having with. Vice President Biden uh, about how to address the now very mainstream idea of expanding the court um, in light of recent events. I also think uh, any debate moderator worth their salt is going to be questioning President Trump about their reversal on the logic of why they're suddenly permitted to appoint a nominee to the court. Um, So, you know, that's where I think I would expect some sort of indication of whether he's open to it. I suspect he will show openness to it. I think that Vice President Biden um, is a careful politician, and that came through a lot during the primary season when other uh, Democratic candidates were much more vocal in, like you said, imaginative and, and creative ideas on how to address the inequities that are happening in the judicial appointment system and other areas. But he, in the, in the main campaign, and the general election campaign, he has stricken a tone uh, of a presidency similar to an FDR. And I think that is a carefully um, selected comparison that he is choosing to make. And lest we forget that FDR was one of the original proponents of expanding the court. And uh, it didn't go so well for FDR, but we were not in the same position at that point in time. And it was not, you know, FDR was proposing it because he was getting shut down at, at the Supreme Court frequently. We're not in that position. Um, we don't have a candidate who is proposing it because he's losing at the Supreme Court or anything like that. This is based on what is very clear memory for American citizens of, of two nominations that have now been totally hijacked by you know, flip-flopping political explanations by one party. And so I think a, a succinct explanation from the vice president on the debate stage uh, for how he would approach expanding the court would go a long way to invigorating his campaign.
0: And and reminding the American people, we do live in a democracy and that a majority of the justices should be appointed by the American people, the representative of the American people, and uh, the popular vote. Of, um, I think that's important. Robert Denault, thank you so much for your insight today. Thank you so much for having me. Great, great talking
1: with you. And um, I hope we're all hanging in there this weekend.